Hey, welcome back to Blurry Creatures, a podcast where we talk about Nephilim, giants, aliens, Bigfoot, all kinds of weird creatures that people see out there. And this episode's a great one. If you haven't listened to the first part, that's episode 64. Go back and listen to that one first, and that'll give you more context to what we're going to talk about today. We're bringing on Dr. Jed Burton and Doug Van Dorn, two accomplished authors who've written books on giants, and they're coming on to talk about the demons, the disembodied spirits of those giants. So we get into it in this week's episode. Once again, if you want to support the show, go to blurrycreatures.com slash members, become a member and keep this show ad free and you get perks. We're doing lots of fun things for members, get shows early, you get shows that no one else gets to listen to. So we're talking about doing some blurry meetups as well as members only chat. So blurrycreatures.com slash members, support the show, keep this thing ad free and keep this thing rolling. Let's get Dr. Judd and Doug on the show. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. Enjoy the journey. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop that's just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. So I'm, I'm trying to remember, gentlemen, where we left off this episode. It's like Back to the Future Part Two right now. Like <laughs> now, it's, now it gets weird. Now it gets weird. weird. Now it gets because Biff's in Biff's in control. <laughs> Where's the hoverboard? <laughs> Man, get that sports almanac. But I loved how you turned the tables on us last time, Doug. You started asking us the questions. Is not what you're supposed to do. That's what. That's our job. <laughs> A great interviewee does turn the tables. It's Doug's job to. Boldly go where no man has gone before. I think people like the flavor. They like the they like how it bounced around. I'm trying to think of an '80s duo: Cheech and Chong. No, <laughs> Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Bill there and we Ted. go. Yeah, it's just Cheech and Chong. <laughs> Cheech and Chong. <laughs> That's more '70s. Nate's right? for <laughs> your first inkling is like, <laughs> man, you guys are some great stoners. This is a really good conversation. Right. right. <laughs> Some people, some people think it is stoner conversation. You're just mellowed out, bro. The Nephilim, the ne- people talk Nephilim. Those guys are stoners. In some ways, your mind has to be there to entertain some of these ideas, right, guys? There is a certain element of outside of the box thinking when it comes to Nephilim, Genesis six. A lot of Christians don't entertain it at all. Yeah, Doug, Doug, Doug does have a church in Colorado. I mean, so if we're gonna, that's true. Rocky Mountain High. That's right. It's not even in Colorado. It's in Boulder. Like it doesn't get any better than that. Right, that's pretty right. country, it's, man. Uh, I, I like it out that way. I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a whole lot rockier. So, welcome back to Blurry Creatures, Luke. We got Bill and Ted on the show today. Excellent. So, it's going to be an excellent adventure here. Most excellent. Party on, dudes. 
But Nate, we digress. We're back for the part two. Yeah, for the legendary part two. Bogus journey. Yeah, Bill and Ted too. Yeah, bogus journey. This is not a bogus journey. This is not a bogus journey. It could be. It could get bogus. It gets weird on blurry creatures. I'm not playing Twister in hell, guys. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You're not going to challenge the Grim Reaper. I think we were just getting into our last episode with you guys on demonology. Just the cryptid creatures. Are they demonic? You were asking some great questions, Doug. And it was it felt like you had a whole quiver of questions ready to go. Keep going in the conversation. And then we got a bunch of emails right after that one came out. One of our most popular episodes right out of the gate. And then people kept emailing us like, we got to do that again. And I think the combination of, of you guys is just something that our, our listeners want more of. So we appreciate you guys coming back on the show. And yeah. Getting more into this conversation. Yeah, our of, pleasure. Always yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. Doug Van Dorn and the professor, Dr. Judd Burton. Yes, sir. Man, this this is great. This this is like this is like coming home. I, I love this show. So where are we where are we gonna where are we gonna start, Nate? It's hard to get it's hard to get part two rolling. It's always hard. Yeah. Right? It's the toughest of the trilogy, always. It really is. It, it is. is the darkest of the trilogy. It is, is that it? too. Yes. Godfather Part Two was the best one. I thought. Yeah. Well, come on. I mean, uh, it's classic. Uh, you know, Greek tragedy. The the dark chapter is always the middle one. You know, Empire Strikes well, Back. Yeah. So we're like in Macbeth right now. Here, <laughs> I'll I'll launch this off, guys. I got a question for you guys. Okay. So, could the spirits of the dead Nephilim, right? The the demons, could they take over the body of an animal? like a creature, and then when that creature mates, could that create a chimerical creature? Or does that creature have to actually physically be alive and be a chimera first in order to... Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, could this could, it, could an inhabited creature produce a demonic creature? Or is it just a vessel? Is it just a vehicle that it can get into? It can't produce something else. Uh, I, That's kind of the question. I tend to think that it's... Yeah, that it's just a that it's a vehicle. There are other mechanisms at work. I don't I don't know that there's a precedent for that. I have an idea of what Doug may say, but I'd like to to get his take on it too. But I I don't see how that that a demon inhabiting an animal mating with with another creature would produce a chimera. But again, that's not to say that that animal can't. We know that inanimate objects can be possessed by demons, can be in, indwelled by demons. No, I, I agree with you, Judd. I don't, I don't think that, uh, and because you're blurring the or mixing together the spiritual and the physical realm, mm-hmm. and it still takes physical seed to make a, a little baby of whatever sort. And obviously, it doesn't mean that they can't be doing genetic manipulation and stuff like that. But sure. What about when you have like an, an like a right like when we talk about like the the Babylon workings things where they're trying to do these these for lack of better terms like a like a sex, sexual cultic practice yeah ceremony do you get into some weird kind of tweener space with that kind of stuff or do you think that's more of a like a curse over you know the offspring or whatever maybe i mean that was actually kind of where my mind was going to if there is a possibility it would be that kind of a thing and just as so many horror movies kind of work on that i would think that if if there was something that was born that way that it would it would itself be demonic only in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. Some people say Bigfoot is a horite, a, a particular type of Nephilim creature. And that's where we started this show is trying to figure out what is Bigfoot. And a lot of people say Bigfoot has this demonic side to it. A horite? Yeah. yeah. Horites from Genesis 14 and 
Deuteronomy uh, 2. The hairy ones. The cave dwellers. Yeah, but it's my understanding that that's, that's a rendering of the Hurrians, who are a culture, um, a kind of quasi-Mesopotamian culture that existed in Anatolia. I suppose there could be members of, of that civilization that were giants, uh, because the giants, you know, amongst other things, did, in the later post-flood world, they did sort of lend themselves out as mercenaries as their numbers became more sparse. But just from a linguistic perspective, I think that that's just a, a rendering of Hurion. So one of the things we talked about on our last episode that I thought was kind of fun, Luke, was of all the creatures we've talked about, Bigfoot is kind of the smartest. Mm-hmm. It's been able to survive all this time. The giants got wiped out, probably because they were bigger and easier targets. But somehow Bigfoot, of all these creatures, and there's werewolf creatures and other stuff, but outsmarted all, just about everybody. What? And we're trying to kind of, that's the, the quest on this show is to figure out what it is. And it seems like, like I said, they have some sort of demonic spiritual capability, but they're also one of the last survivors. They've managed to elude everything. And I wonder why that is, and I wonder how much animal and spirit we have in this creature. The giants seem to have met their end, but Bigfoot keeps going. Well, there's a fair amount of woo, as they say, that surrounds the sort of the Bigfoot encounters and experiences, right? Like whether it be yeah, orbs like, and lights. Yeah, and, like they're not they're not purely primatology here. There's something else at work. Um, yeah, because like you say, people report all kinds of paranormal phenomena that accompany the sightings. I wouldn't say that that's universal and across the board, but it's also not infrequent uh, that they report these kinds of things. The guy that turned me on to that side of, because I was perfectly happy as a, you know, green anthropology graduate student to accept that Sasquatch was just another intelligent primate that had weathered the the millennia. I had attended a lecture by Jane Goodall, who also subscribed to a, a belief in Sasquatch as well and had pretty much made up my mind until I heard Rob Riggs talking about all of these strange occurrences, uh, orbs and lights and Bigfoot appearing out of uh, portals and things like that. And I, I began to to hear about other sightings that, that were accompanied by similar phenomena. So there does seem to be a supernatural component to Sasquatch and arguably a demonic component. Do you guys think that if a creature has spiritual capabilities, it's automatically demonic? Uh, the well, the creatures that we're talking about, I would say, yeah, yeah. But I mean, angels are spirits too. Somehow they have bodies, whereas demons are disembodied. Mm-hmm. But they're they're bodies that are different than ours. So you know, whatever they're doing, they're able to do things that ours can't do. Well, they're not human, right? They're either that's the other thing we know. They're not a. They're men, but they're not human. So they're not Adam men, but they're men of some kind. The elder race is Albert. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, John. I think you made a good point though too. I, on this show, you know, guys, we we you know we talked to a wide variety of people, including Dr. Jeff Meldrum, who's like the leading mm-hmm. sort of gigant, gigantopithecus, yeah, you know, camp guy that says this is a living, breathing giant. Yeah, ape. that's the Grover Grover Krantz school of thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just it just it doesn't boo. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to fit with just all of the circumstantial evidence, right? All, all mm-hmm. of this and the experiential stuff that people see, right? And, and just all the weird stuff too that just doesn't that you see thematically as well with people that don't have connected points with each other. They're talking about similar experiences, and so I think that's a, and that's a great segue. I think Nate, into the back into demonology here. Mm-hmm. 
is that there is something multidimensional perhaps or spiritual about Bigfoot in particular as a creature. But, you know, when we're talking about disembodied spirits, let's get, let's get back rolling to where we were on the, on the Q and A stuff. I, I, I think it was fascinating to kind of uncover and turn over rocks when it can't, when it comes to this, because I think this theme, especially when, Nate, when we talk about Bigfoot and that's where we start, and then you, this show has really gone into the Nephilim, into the realm of creatures, and the and a lot of the unknown paranormal, even if you want to say that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it all kind of core competency surrounds, you know, demonology. And so, and I don't, other than our episode that we did with you guys last time, we, you know, we we broad brush it, and, and we talk we talk about it, but it's not. It is a core. It's a. It becomes a core theme in all, a lot of these things, right? You have to. People have these shows, but they don't really ever get to the. You know, after after you hear a thousand Bigfoot counters, your your mind's like, what it? What are they? Where do they come from? How does this? How does this make sense? So that's that's kind of the the gist of blurry creatures is trying to get more concrete, specific answers. Jed and I were talking before the show a little bit. Like, where where would we like to go with this? And I think that what this little series of programs can help people with more than anything else is to root the monsters than the blurry creatures in a rea- in a real reality that the Bible talks about. And I just don't think a lot of people think that way. They don't, they're not, they're not realizing that the scripture talks about a whole lot of different creatures and it. And it talks about them in a real sense and talks about them in a evil sense, a spirit, supernatural sense. A lot of people, a lot of people don't like that anyway, just because uh, we're so naturalized and, anti-supernatural and especially as american christians the way that we think about god's world it's not a good thing mm-hmm. i will say last time too guys when you guys opened up and we talked about isaiah i mean i grew up in the church right and you know, that that isn't a verse or a passage that's really preached on a whole lot <laughs> maybe maybe at uh at your church doug but uh you know, you don't, you don't, you think, oh my gosh, we're talking about, you know, you go back to the Hebrew and that's what I always love about what we do here, Nate, is we take a look at all the, all these things that these unanswered and these unknowns, and then we hold it up to the scriptures and to the, to a really biblical worldview. And that's what I think Doug was just touch, touching on. But even understanding that those things are a reference in the Bible is fascinating to me. Well, let, let me give you another one. If you want, if you want to think about yeah. what the scripture says. So at the very sure. end of my giant book, like this is the very last thing I do after discussing these demons and stuff like this. I go to Psalm 91 and I, I translate Psalm 91 in the most supernatural way I can. And, and I'm looking at dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible, one of the great resources out there to kind of root all of my translations in, in what I'm going to say, but just listen to this song. Cause this is not what you're going to read in the ESV. <laughs> uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high God will abide in the shadow of Shaddai, the God of the wilderness. He will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He shall overshadow you with his wings. His truth shall cover you with a shield. You shall not fear the night demon, nor the arrow shooting Lilith who shoots her arrows in the day, nor the deceased ghost that walks in darkness, nor noonday demon. A thousand shall fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, Elion, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, 
They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion-headed demons. You shall trample the lion and the dragon because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, just yeah. let that sink in that, that he who has God as his God is not going to be harmed by what? All these things that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. You don't have those in your translation. What does that do to the meaning of the psalm? It, yeah, it, uh, it gelds it pretty hard. Yeah. We talked about we talked about the lion the lion face creatures. There's a verse we posted in I think David there was a someone posted a verse David partnered with the lion-faced man or something. Uh Benaiah one of his mighty men killed two lion men, Ariels. And it's like what the heck is that? And nobody really yeah. knows. Yeah. Again, it's it, you get all these muddled translations. The people that sit on these boards of these publication companies may not even have a supernatural worldview themselves. They may be only nominally Christian or not Christian at all. That plays a part in why we get these these sterile translations of the scripture. And, you know, I, I just I go back to what Mike Heiser says. If it's weird and it's in the Bible, then it's theologically relevant. Yeah. <laughs> OK, yeah, it's and I mean, that, that's what we're you know, that's the task we're at here is, you know, hey, look, it's it's more than just pecan pie and coffee socials at church and a sense of community this is the kind of stuff that should be occupying much of our attention because we live in a supernatural world just because there's a veil a veneer there that most of us can't see through doesn't mean that this stuff is not happening that it doesn't exist it's almost like sometimes you have to have the mindset like we're all jedi walking into the most eisley katina mm -hmm. and han solo is going to meet us and we're seeing all these creatures around right mm -hmm. it's like we can watch a movie and have that mindset but when we read the bible you know you you hear of all these creatures and you immediately your thought is just now nah. that's because we when we watch a movie or we read epic fiction like lord of the rings or something or dune or something like that we suspend our judgment it's like the default for reading literature and we should in many cases we should read the scriptures like that we should we should completely suspend our judgment about it let it tell us what it wants to say precisely precisely because we have we're in this enlightened academia sort of age we we separate things even without like subconsciously we well, separate things even though we're the Hebrews never did. Yeah. The writers of the scriptures and the Bible, they didn't, the unseen realm, right? Everything is, is hyper-spiritual when it comes to the Bible. And yet we have this sort of postmodern cognitive dis mm -hmm. dissonance when it comes to... It's, that's completely by design. You know, I, that the paper that I wrote earlier this year about the linguistic and cultural manipulation of human institutions by these entities, you know, that's one of their chief MOs. And they're still doing it, you know. I mean, they're in high gear now. That's why it, it's, you know, cognitive dissonance is such a prevalent element of our culture today. It's because of those kinds of supernatural machinations. Um, well, Doug, I, I want to get back into the weirdness real quick. Someone posted on our member space, Second Samuel eighteen eight, that said the wood devoured 
more people than the sword? It was this question of, were the woods alive? Were the, was there some demonic trees? Was there something going on? I don't know if you've read that one through your translations, but someone was talking about, are these the Ents in Lord of the Rings? Was there trees that were alive at one point? Because it seems to elude that in 2 Samuel 18.8. Not only do we have creatures, we could have plants that were demonically possessed. Is that is that out of the realm of possibilities, guys? Plants trees are we getting weird like venus venus flight traps i, I don't i don't know that it's outside the realm of possibility I, I wouldn't discount it but um just as a footnote to that remember that the ants were actually good um yeah but bigfoot it saves people too so there's this weird well, blurry that's not to say that whether, whether you quantify bigfoot as as purely primate or something primate and more soup the, the supernatural component you're dealing with different species of you know different subspecies of of a bigfoot of sasquatch so some are going to behave one way some may behave another way there'll be sh- there'll be shared behaviors in cultural institutions but you know there there's going to be some variation in behavior so there might be some that are benevolent um there seem to be some that are not not so oak benevolent. trees are good oak trees are good well, Right. Well, they're, they're all like they're they're good, but they're grumpy. It's, they're all kind of, they're kind of like Clint Eastwood. They're like yes. good, they're like good, but they're all they're real grumpy. <laughs> Cedar trees are on the Lord's side. Unless right? we start Cedars applying critical race theory to treat them. Oh. <laughs> what do you think, Doug? What do you think? Is is I mean, kudos to your listener because I've never heard of this one before. But I'm I'm looking at a a dictionary entry of the Septuagint word, and uh, they translate it as an oak an oak coppice but and i can't would take a while to look this up but apparently it's used by homer so homer's mr myth so hey, I, doug, I don't know doug, what the context of it is. doug is the word is the greek word there um dur druma druma yeah i figured that it would be a similar one yeah why do you bring that up well that's the same that's that's what the word druid is derived from Ah. Uh-huh. Into this it. is what it's like to be in the lab, huh? We're in the lab right now with, with <laughs> Doug and Judge. Let's start. <laughs> well, Dude, see, I mean, if, if saying, you go like, back and is... look at the Greek literature on on the Celts, which is where that the the Keltoi—that's the the Greek rendering—the way that they they transliterated what they heard these priests being called was or somewhere between that and the word that they gave them the dura part or the drar or or some morphological phonological variation of that means oak and of course there was a there's a component of, of druidic celtic culture uh that so dealt, the trees are alive yeah there was a there was a sense that the trees were, oh, yeah, were animated with this, this life force well you find that all over the scripture i mean abraham's sitting underneath the oak tree when the three angels come to him yeah that's a very common idea so, that you find yeah Hmm. Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's just confined to Celtic culture. It's definitely universal. Um, but it's it is interesting that that's the word that, that that there's that um, that they chose that word to of all yeah. the trees. So what do you think? Put. Yeah, the Hebrew word is just uh, just the word for a forest. So they they got pretty specific with the word that they chose. Yeah, that's and you said that's the Septuagint rendering, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because again, we're left with with the clarification of the Septuagint. 
you know, those people were uniquely qualified because they were Jewish, but they were also Hellenized. So they understood the idioms that would properly translate uh, or, or most closely translate into um, the Greek stuff. So that that's interesting. Well, it's also Doug. interesting that the wood devoured more people than the sword. I mean, I mean, how that's that's a lot of people. Or is, it, is, it just, is it talking about the wilderness? Just just claiming I, folks. I mean, or? who just something's going on? Maybe Bigfoot's yeah, in there. It's sort of reminiscent of the uh, uh, description of how the the land devoured the people in uh, the the numbers. 12 spies expedition where they discover the Anakim uh, in Canaan. Very similar to that. And of course yeah. that, that whole thing is all about giants in numbers. Yeah. I, I wonder, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. I, I wonder if that's uh, without getting too far off topic, but I, I, th- I wonder if because eating and consuming is the idiom there that, that that might not be a nod to what was observed about giant kind by biblical peoples in general, because I'm also thinking about even words like uh, like the, the uh, old Germanic word for giant is Jotun. The the, uh, the realm that the, the giants lived in was Jotunheim. Uh, Jotun translates to eat. That's where we get the word eat from. And of course, the giants in not just Norse mythology, but mythology all over the world uh, were ravenous consumers of, of, of all kinds of things, including flesh and blood humans. Nice people. So, Doug, this this list of questions you have, what are what, what are some uh, hidden questions you have on the hidden ones? We want the hidden ones. Secret it's funny. Ones. Uh, I read that Psalm ninety one, and I, I looked up the, the word goblin to see if goblins are anywhere in any translation, and sure enough, they show up in Psalm ninety one. In the old Wycliffe translation, so this is like 1300, so Middle English, and he translates one of those as a goblin. That is fascinating. Goblins and fiends, you know, these little, it's very, very Irish way of thinking. Of course, that's where he's writing from is Britain. So it's interesting that because like the, the NIV, I got the NIV up and it's like the, the pestilence, the stocks in the darkness, the plague that destroys at midday. And you're like, mm-hmm. right. It's all natural. Yep. What pestilence stocks in the darkness and what plague destroys at midday. It's, I mean, obviously it's supernatural. I mean, obviously it is because those, those things don't make sense. Even if you're trying to talk metaphorically speak, that doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Like, well, I think it's fascinating because it's, it is, it is this watered down, maybe palatable, acceptable you know non-spiritual version non-supernatural version yeah. socially acceptable goblins i want the I want, give me the goblins judd and the, go, the goblins Here, think- here's the wickliffe here's a wickliffe's translation in my best middle english he says of an arrow fleeing in the day of a goblin going in darkness of a sailing and the midday fiend that was <laughs> yes. perfect. I love it. that was great that was perfect man a midday fiend Gotta love it. Psalm 91 6. And it's in the original Irish. <laughs> <laughs> only, only on blurry creatures. That's right. I mean, what do you think happens to these creatures? I mean, that's what we talked about at the beginning of the show is like Bigfoot manages to survive. And all these creatures, the lion faced men and whatever else we hear in the Bible, the Leviathan and these other creatures, they, they don't make it or they're out there somewhere. I don't think it's accurate to say that they don't make it. Um, we ha- you got to remember that they that- get killed off. Well, no, I mean these are these are demonic 
manipulations, demonic manifestations. Physically, the giants don't make it when they're embodied. Um, But once they're done with that existence, there's there's a reason why you have a show called Blurry Creatures is because they're real. (laughs) And they made it. (laughs) Maybe maybe not as, maybe they're not as prevalent. Maybe they're more Um, prevalent than any of us want to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. God, maybe that's especially believers from them, which is a, a grace. Hmm. I've got so I've got a question that I've kind of always pondered, and, and when it came it comes to the demons, and they, scripturally speaking, they know the scriptures and they quote it back, and so that's one. And the second part is like the man at the tombs, when Jesus is there, and they say that it, it's not time yet, right? Like, well, what are you what are you doing here? How if these are the disembodied spirits, of the giants? How how does it seem they're so fluent in the scriptures? Because they've had millennia on us to study it. However, they absorb the material, the word, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe they have, I'm not trying to, to make light of the situation, but they, they obviously absorb information in, in, in more efficient, in some ways, more efficient ways than we do and are able to utilize it and, and retain it. They've had a long time to absorb and, and, and memorize and master this material and use and weaponize it. And that's why when when you have cases of demonic possession and these people are speaking languages that they've never had yeah. um, any training in, that's how, how is it that it takes, you know, three or four burly guys to hold down a little girl? Well, it's because that's the spirit of a giant. So you've got the, the supernatural residue of that physical manifestation present there. And there, I mean, the intelligence factor the language factor, uh, the knowledge of scripture factor, it's all there because they've had more time to study it than we have. So the disembodied spirit of a giant is a demon. What about a disembodied spirit of a chimera? Same. What is that spirit more animalistic? No, not necessarily. I would say, yeah, it is because you've got the, the angels messing around with animals in whatever kind of bestial thing that they were doing with them. Like say there's a, a centaur that dies. Is it, does it, do you think it has some sort of demonic spirit attached to those things? Yeah, because those all fall under, we're not just talking about the giants in the pre-flood world, but there's enough linguistic wiggle room that, that the giants, the pre-flood giants and the, the chimera that are born out of those experiments all fall under the taxonomy of Nephilim. So the periodic table chart of demons could be very, very complicated. Oh yeah, like Judd says, the color palette of these guys. Yeah, I want to. I want to ask too, like kind of getting back to them, to them, all the knowledge, right? Do you? And I hadn't really thought in terms of this before, but I think the giants were supremely intelligent because of their, of their, yes, oh, of their bloodlines, because that would make sense as well. Like, because I don't know, you, you think about demons and you kind of have this like medieval idea of this like this gnarly beast thing, but then you realize that like. Dude, they know the scripture front and back, and they can speak all these different languages. And and you're right; they spent millennia hanging around in, in limbo. Mm-hmm. But they also had this head start in some ways on everybody, you know, on on us normal humans and copies of copies of humans. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you, I mean, you're talking about half of their well for the pre-flood giants and probably whatever early post-flood incursions there might have been, kind of kind of re- reboot of the Genesis six event. You've got, you know, half the pedigree there is angelic. So, you, I mean, you can imagine 
the nearest analogy that I, I could come up with is, is that would almost be the equivalent of having a, a quantum computing component of your brain because the angelic pedigree would be the, the sort of mechanism by which that physiology would work uh, because they're, from, they're technically from another dimension in the same way that, that quantum computing today literally dumps the question into the multidimensional realm to derive the answer. It takes tremendous amounts of energy and tremendous amounts of cooling to keep those things stable. So that, that would kind of be the equivalent. You know, they, they have a kind of quasi-quantum computer component to their brain. It's, it, it's, it's the red hair, it's right? It's the red hair. So here's the thing. As the show barrels on, guys, I, 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 I tend to lean on the second incursion. There's so many demonic creatures that have survived and are around still. It seems to me that some of these complex theories, if it survives through the arc and the DNA and then it's awoken somehow, I, there's just too many creatures for something, some science experiment gone wrong later on in history. That's how I feel. What do you guys think about that? There's just a lot of demonic creatures running around. It wouldn't make sense if they didn't tamper a second time, I feel. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we might have mentioned this last time in Enoch. He he talks about locking up all these all these demons and putting them into the abyss. This is pre-flood. Yeah, and then yeah. he's told, no, you have to let a tenth of them uh, remain. Yeah. Like a tithe. A tenth is, is yeah. a really interesting thing. So it's like weird. Yeah, thanks. the demons get to be a tithe for mankind. Thanks what do, a what lot. Do you think, what do you think God does that? <laughs> well, it's to to sharpen our character. I mean, the only, you know, for good or ill, for good, I, I think the only way that, that we can develop characters is through testing and hardship and trial. You know, that's just the side of heaven. That's just how things work. You know, think, yeah, let, me, let me go with this for, for a minute because I think it, this can tie into a couple things we've been talking about here. Go back to Psalm 91. You know, it talks about having God as your God. You can put this into a chiasm of an ABCBA. So God is your God and then demons. And then there's a strange center where we've heard this verse before where God will not let your foot be struck against the stone, right? Where does that come from? That comes from Satan quoting the scripture. Now we were just talking about that with demons. To who? To Jesus. And where is he doing it? At the temptation, which is what Judd was just talking about. And the whole context of the, of the psalm is demonic, demonic realm. So all these, you know, God's not going to let these things happen to you. You know, he's going to protect you from these things. And here comes the devil taking one of the most supernatural of all the scripture passages in the Old Testament, tempting Jesus with the supernatural to, to undo it. And the whole, the whole point of it is that, no, you, you, don't, you don't go that way. You go by trusting in the Lord. It, it's actually, a, it's a mirror of the fall and the temptation that Satan gives to Eve, where you can be like one of us. You will be like gods knowing good and evil, as King James says, like gods. What do you mean? Well, do what I tell you, make your decision, eat the fruit. And the whole point was she, she would have been like a God if she would have just obeyed God and done what he said. It's bizarre twisting, tempting. There's one more thing that's related to this. I don't know if you guys know this is right before Israel goes into the, into the wilderness where they are tempted in the parallel in Exodus. I can't remember exactly where it is. 
15, I think, into 15, into 16. They stop at this place, place called Elim. And Elim is a plural word that means gods. And there are 70 palm trees and 12 springs. So you've got <laughs> the, the launching point for the temptation is a place of the gods with 70 trees. We were talking about trees earlier. Trees are totally representative of these creatures, at least the parents. And, you know, of course, 70 is the number of the sons of God that came down, that God divides the nations up at Tower Babel. So, I mean, and then 12 is obviously the number of Israel and, and the tribes. And so it's like this convergence of all these perfect natural, supernatural things out in the middle of a wilderness too. And, uh, you know, place where demons haunt. Because that's wild. That's wild. I mean, and that's where Jesus is too, right? He's out in the middle of the wilderness when that happens. So there's all kinds of things that are actually going on in these stories that people don't really stop and think about. It's funny you brought that up because I was just going to say, like, does Jesus go out into the wilderness on purpose? Because that's where the demons are. That's exactly what he, how he has to do. Yeah. And I, Doug, this is fascinating that we read, you read through Psalm 91 and I, and I just, not, not until you said that, did I realize that you're right. Satan quotes that exactly before he'll command his angels concerning you. He's telling them to uh-huh. watch you throw yourself off here because the, the word because says this. It, God says it protects And it's Psalm 91. That, dude, <laughs> That's not what is... the protection's from, uh, Lucifer. Protection's <laughs> actually supposed to be from you. <laughs> and, then, and then that just bolsters how just how unbelievably supernatural this Psalm is. Is that, oh man, that's just, there's a mind grenade. I, I mean, I had to say that again for our listeners because it hit me when you were, after you'd gone through it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what we talked about last time, the temptation of Christ and and understanding that like they didn't know if, if he could die. And then the demons understand the scriptures and so does Satan obviously is the prince of darkness and he quotes back a supernatural psalm to Jesus saying, well, he commands your angels. Isn't God going to come take care of you? God's not going to let you die. I only got to the center, which is... Uh, the quotation there, but then right after it again, it says, you you will tread on the lion-headed demons and trample the lion and the dragon, who's mm. who's Satan. So Satan knows what's going on in this passage, but then you got to come back to the edge of the, of the psalm and what the whole point is. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. The temptation was essentially to give that up. Mm. Mm. Man. So Dude, that's so good. Where's the line between when it goes from a demon to a higher entity? How do we know the difference? Because most Christians or most people in this space, they call everything demons. Mm-hmm. Everything's a demon, right? But it sounds like sometimes you're dealing with bigger guns. There's a bigger a bigger entity's coming in. It's it's not just a disembodied spirit. We were talking before the show about uh, Washington D.C. and the layout of that. <laughs> you guys look much into that? No. Correct. I mean, it's very Masonic. Yeah. I mean, it's laid out to the gods, uh, the zodiac, um, to Virgo, and you look at that, and what are they doing there? It's essentially a permanent ritual in stone 
in, of incantation, not to the demons, but to the higher ups that you were just yeah, talking about. Yeah, the principalities. About, the, uh, the principalities. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, I mean, it's a sex magic too, because, because the obelisk oh, yeah. is the phallic symbol. And across the, the lawn and the pool there, you have the Capitol building. Uh, which is, you know, the the rotunda no. portion of that no. is the womb of Isis. It's yep. a stylized um, female reproductive system. Right. And you've guys seen Belly of the Beast, the Fall Brothers, where they talk about the how the the Masons do the the rising of Osiris every time mm-hmm. there's an inaugural mm-hmm. presidential mm-hmm. inauguration. They do this this whole ceremony that's supposed to invoke mm-hmm. the spirit of Osiris from the underworld to inhabit. I mean, it's wild stuff. But that, I've heard this before. You know, and you're right. It's mm-hmm. like you have the phallus and then the in the womb and there it's bizarro stuff that just seems so totally innocuous in, until you look in the into the symbolism and there's gosh i mean symbolism is, is is where the occult really you know draws draws a lot of its power too right like it's the well and it's it's the language of the subconscious you know that's why it flies under the radar so easily you know unless you're unless you're versed in symbology and understand the the psychology behind it then you most of it, it just you know, it just goes by you on the on the highway of life for most people. That, of course, and a hefty dose of discernment from the Holy Spirit, uh, mm. uh, will will yeah. cue you to a lot a lot of that sort of thing. But I, yeah, it's just like so much of of what the 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 demonized, illuminized components of our society do. They have to show it some way, but they they hide hide a lot of their their ideology in plain sight, so that we get we get their liturgy and write, you know, at halftime shows and TV commercials and rock concerts and stuff like that. <laughs> well, I mean, on our show, we've talked specifically, and I think Tim goes into detail about how the, the hierarchy of kingdom orders, the powers mm-hmm. and the thrones and our world, the way we do Kings and yes, but absolutely, but that modeling that, that, uh, that celestial political model was, was heavenly first. It was corrupt. Sure. It was corrupted by the fallen angels and the demons, so that they could they could weaponize it against humanity. Hmm. My point is, is we have these clues that what heaven is like, right? Because of the, it's built into human society. Where did we get it from? And you, and, and it just makes you think. If we have this many animal species on the planet, do you think there's this many demonic creatures? What kind of cre- are, are are there creatures in heaven? Myriads and myriads. Think about the language of revelation of all the creatures around the mm-hmm. throne. Um, yeah, I don't even think that we can possibly imagine it, how many that there actually are. And good and bad, I think. So we, we know about their stories about people being afflicted, like hurt. Um, you got poltergeists and these different names for these for these demonic entities or, or things that like that injure people, that scratch people, that even sometimes it seems it kills people. What are they, what are they allowed to do? And, and, you know, are there different levels in that sense of, of these, of the demonic where there are certain ones that are like super physical or harmful or like can hurt, hurt people. Cause that's, I mean, we hear stories like that, right? You have these, I know they call them poltergeists or whatever, but they, you've got these ones that throw people across rooms and, you know, and cause physical damage to, to people and it's not everyone right but they were wrestlers in the ancient world yeah, yeah the old yeah. wwe yeah, except <laughs> the, it's not fake they're, they're greco-roman yeah you guys unpack a little bit of that for me like is there is there a line do they, do they have 
a rule to play? Like they can't, I mean, or there are certain levels of, of sort of veracity? I, I think so. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of character sketch that we have of the, the fate of the spirits of the giants in Enoch, um, they, it's clearly said that they'll, they roam the earth seeking to indwell, to oppress, uh, to, you know, do, do all manner of harm, you know, whether it's psychological or to the body. Or, so I think that there's, there's a, a wide spectrum of things that they can do, but there's always that just like the fallen angels and just like the, you know, the kind of principalities, geographical principalities, they're all under a restraint. They're all on a, a kind of celestial leash that God keeps them on. And in, in other words, you know, they can never do any more, anything that exceeds his will that they're going to sure. do. I mean, these things disappear people though. Like we talked oh, about. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, do they, d- d- they have to d- yeah. disappear people like take them in. Like the mob. Okay. You yeah. disappear. <laughs> you. Hey, hey, forget about it. Well, know? here's a, here's a question I want to throw out there. We've interviewed people that say that there could be three DNAs in a demonic creature. Like for instance, our buddy Roger who had a serpent mount on his farm said that he thinks Bigfoot is one part primate, one part human, one part demonic. Well, there's a there's a trifecta of of DNA there, like the 23andMe of the demonic world. What do you guys think? Let's break it down. <laughs> so Judd. so biologically, he uh, well, I don't I don't know that you would a three parter a three part. I, I, yeah, I don't think that you, the Neapolitan. I don't think that you could separate the primate stuff. Just humans technically are primates of a sort separate but i'm not i'm not again i'm not i'm not putting this in the context of of evolution or anything i'm just talking about biological similarity i i, I don't know i mean that that, that uh, the triple helix thing may may be possible i don't i don't know to be quite honest i would have to look look into it a little bit more but um def- could primates be could primates be a chimera i don't think so um I mean, they're 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 kind of like humans, and they're kind of like animals. Yes, but that still doesn't. I, again, I'm not saying this possibility is not there, but it just it, it you know, just because it it looks like something doesn't necessarily mean that it is something. I mean, because humans search for patterns in all kinds of things. I'm just saying. I mean, it, it, could a chimera exist today? And we think it's just an animal, but it's actually this. That is possible. I think. Yeah, and, and probably likely uh sorry i'm getting weird i'm getting weird here that's okay it's late at night man i was in i was in well that's a perfect time to talk about this kind of (laughs) yeah exactly i was uh in nepal three years ago and we were in Kathmandu for an afternoon we went to this crazy ancient temple and there's monkeys all over this thing all over it and I uh, cut this picture of this monkey who had stolen an ice cream cone from some tourists and it was eating this ice cream cone. And they're really tame, you know, got right up to this thing. And I am telling you, this thing looked at me and it was the devil. See, see, see what I'm saying? <laughs> well, that, that's like, that's like the, you know, the familiar <laughs> familiars that, uh, which is, you know, not just in what in European witchcraft, but all over the world. You know, these 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 sort of quasi natural um, demonic helpers that take the form of animals. I think a chimera, a demon creature, was created. 
What are your thoughts? A ceremony, a sexual act. What's your thoughts? Personally, I think that it would include components of, of both of those. That it would be, it would it would include what we consider scientific process, but it, there would also be the supernatural component to it because you're dealing with a supernatural pedigree. Or in some cases, it might it might just be as simple as as the sex act itself being at work. But I tend to think that it's a combination of things just because the watchers, the coin of their realm in terms of, of dealing with humanity, this exchange that they made was a combination of practical and occult sciences. So probably this, a, a similar kind of thing is at work. Yeah, because we're creating chimeras today, like someone posted today. It's like a, pi- a pig and... Ha- I posted uh-huh. that, Nate. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it glows, but it's not demonic because it's it doesn't have that watcher <laughs> DNA in it, right? That we know of. Yeah, that we know of, right? It's, it's, jell- it's jellyfish DNA. I mean, we've been it. we've been creating chimeras for decades. Um, one of the reasons I came back to Merkel was not just because it's my hometown and I love it, because but there's there's some X Files stuff going on around here, and there has been for a long time. I may have told you guys about the Merkel Goat Man before. But could a goat man exist? Is it demonic just because it's a goat and a man together? Is it then demonic? So, I mean, think about think about these chimeras uh, of the ancient world, you know, minotaurs and centaurs and mermaids. Like, I am not aware Satyrs. of any yeah. physical bones that have ever showed that these exist. Not lack of proof doesn't prove that mm-hmm. it's a lack. Like, they mm-hmm. could certainly have been. But it just makes me wonder, could could some sort of ritual magic sex act all that combined actually create an entity in another realm mm-hmm. well yeah, i th- i think you're onto something doug and yeah. i i've i've thought for a number of years that one of the reasons for the lack of of evidence material evidence skeletal evidence for older giants is that we're talking about dna from two dimensions essentially and their remains yeah. may not even decompose in a manner that we are used to observing in this reality. You know, when you go to the uh, uh, some of these like New York Times articles and stuff, of giant mounds, when they're digging out uh, and they, they cap, come, bones come out of it and stuff, over and over and over, you will read the same story that they took the bones out and they disintegrated on the spot. Mm-hmm. Like now... I, I don't know a whole lot about human bones, but I've never heard of a human bone just disintegrating on the spot. I've always thought that's a they, strange they thing. They can, but the, you know, again, it's not a it's not a perennial occurrence. You know, it depends. There are a lot of environmental factors, at, at least for let's just say human skeletal remains or animal skeletal remains. You know, if if it's in a preservative environment like a peat bog or if it's arid, you know, and it's it's completely desiccated, and uh, you know, then you're probably going to have some intact stuff. But if there are other mechanisms at work, if it's in a sealed tomb or something like that, and hasn't been exposed to air for for centuries, then yeah, you might you might actually have some really you know fantastic you know, very, very rapid decomposition right in front of you just from not being exposed to those elements for a while. But the fact that those are giant remains and they're doing them and, and I, it would take some cross-referencing, but to, to sort of geographically, you know, map out 
where those finds are specifically, you know, where the rapid decomposition did occur. And if you have a variance in the the types of environments, the type of provenience that you find these remains in, yeah, then yeah. you've got, I think, you, I think you're on to something there that kind of what we're both getting at here that we're, you know, since you're dealing with that, that remnant angelic DNA and human DNA, we're, ta- we're talking about the physics of two different realms at work in, in the decomposition process. So, Doug, back to what you were saying. A lot of people talk about giant mounds on our show. And one of the last time we talked about giant mounds, they were saying that the mound is a portal to the underworld. Yep. And to let creatures out and all kinds of... Reminds me of Ghostbusters, the ecto containment thing system, you know, where the like it's some sort of doorway to let this stuff out. Mm-hmm. What do you think about those ideas? The demonic creatures are underground, mm-hmm. and if we do the right things, they can come out. I, I think that the history of, of ritual magic certainly testifies to that being not necessarily with, with mounds, but they're they're. There is not infrequently in thaumaturgy and high magic that that ritual magic component to to quote unquote summon a demon or bring a demon. Yeah, because creature creatures and mounds are they go hand in hand. Totally, like peanut butter and jelly. Oh yeah, I, I Judd, I thought it was interesting too when we we're talking about the idea of these and Doug that these bones disappear because that's one of the things that always people always talk about with Bigfoot is that the, where the, if it exists where are the bones right in, in the context of what we've been talking about. If there is some sort of chimerical aspect to Bigfoot, or at least some, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. multidimensional thing, that would also beg that same argument mm-hmm. that the reason we're not finding Bigfoot skeletons um, is that they don't decompose or the, in the same manner or in another realm. And I thought it's also fascinating the idea that like these rituals, and I'm just touching on some things that you talked about, these rituals may, may create entities in different, in, in other dimensions. Um, I had a question on that, and it has to do with um, something Nate and I talked about with the, um, Chief Joseph Riverwind and his wife when it came to shapeshifters and the idea of of someone doing a ritual or a rite to then be inhabited, asking for the for the indwelling, and that then changing their um, gosh their, their physicality for lack of a, changes their their morphology. Now. I- there's pres- there's certainly precedent for that. Um, if you look in the into the literature on werewolves, <laughs> um, that is that's not, or, or rather that's that's something that you're going to run into quite a bit. There there more often than not there's a there's a there's a kind of witchcraft component, a spellcraft component to um, a person becoming a werewolf, and that's that's true not just not just for old world werewolfism and were creatures of all kinds, but it's true uh, in the indigenous lore of uh, the new world as well. There are even syncretistic traditions today. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of Northern Mexico. Of course, you guys know that I used to live in McAllen, which is right down on the, on the border. I used to teach at South Texas college and these stories were preserved about these kinds of shape shifting. Uh, and there was always a bruja, a witch involved in in the you know in the sort of catalyst necessary to and and, and also often the bruja themselves or brujo the male uh, would would be the one actually doing the transformation. There there are tales of um, in the in the lore of Western Europe, particularly in France and Germany, 
of a, a hallucinogenic compound being used in conjunction with spellcraft to transform people into werewolves. So that that ritual component is often very present in that that affecting of the, the the physical transformation that you were talking about, Luke. I'm curious about this too because we even hear about with with like possession, right? That people look different and that they appear different, right? They they even sound they sound different, but they actually there's some physical something that happens. Well. well- we were talking earlier about um, Nebuchadnezzar before we came on the show. Right. And you, brought up, right. you brought up werewolves. So I think it would be fun just to hear Judd talk a little bit more about this, but I'll set it up. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is told, and I think this is really Im- probably more important than people understand. He's told by the watchers that there is a decree of the watchers that he is going to basically become like an animal, Right. So then, you know, a year or whatever passes and he's like standing on the top of his temple. And I imagine that it's probably the hanging gardens or something like that, which is basically a replication of Eden and the cosmic mountain. So he's like, right. He's, he's like right there on the top. And all of a sudden he becomes this bestial creature, right. That's very reminiscent of a, of a werewolf. And so he's, he's in Babylon and in Isaiah 13 that we talked about last time, one of the one of the words that comes up in that passage is the howlings, the echos, howlings. Like what the heck is a howling? Even the even the DDD dictionary doesn't doesn't have an entry on that. So I'm not really sure what it is, but you can translate it as howlings. And this is the same place also that Gilgamesh is from. And Gilgamesh's kind of best buddy is Enkidu, who's this werewolf creature of the past so all this is like happening in the very same spot to the king of the world what do you think about all that judd in, in like the context of what we're talking about i think that's incredibly significant I, the fact that you point out in that passage in uh, in daniel where it's not just any just any class of angel that tells him this but it's it's the watcher class the watchers the, the people responsible for the creation of the demons in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, now you're, you're going off the Septuagint, right, with the, the Echos? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That, to me, is very telling because, again, the, the people that produce the Septuagint are running the Hebrew idiom through the, the Greek language, and they're coming up with the best fit for it um, because they're they're – they're uniquely qualified in space and time for where they're at to be able to do that. Um, and I think that that's pretty significant. Um, I can't help but think that they, they would have been thinking about Lucon, uh, the king of Arcadia in Greek tradition, who was mm-hmm. changed into a wolf, a wolf, a werewolf creature, essentially by Zeus. And I suspect that if you go back and look at that story, there would be there would be a lot of similar idiom in that and probably some similar languages, but the fact that you've got the watchers at play here, you've got the tradition of, of Enkidu, who is this wild man kind of Bigfoot slash werewolf uh, kind of creature. You know, he acts like an animal. He drinks from the water. He runs around on all fours. I, I think that there's a better, there have been some scholars who have, who have made the case for boanthropy here that, that because Nebuchadnezzar ends up in a field that this is somehow he's changing into a bovine sort of creature. I still think that the were, that the wolf motif is, is 
at play here, particularly because of the watcher context, the chimerical tradition, uh, and the use of that word echos, uh, the howling, uh, to describe the the ravings of of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll bring up one little one more one more little point for you, Nate, because yes. um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is also likened to a tree in that same passage. <laughs> and he's the mighty tree is going to be cut down. This is this is fascinating, mm-hmm. guys. When you guys are saying all this, my thought of turning into a creature, I mean, what's the first thing that happens to human beings in the garden after we sin is we're dressed in animal skins. Is that a symbol mm-hmm. like we become we became like beasts? Is that a bigger metaphor of that's an interesting idea. We, you know, the very first thing, like you, you were humans, and now we're going to put on the clothes of wild animals. And then you see these these stories. Trey Smith likes to talk about that, like the well, uh, the garments. There it is. Yeah, the garments. That's interesting in and of itself because that those garments. You know, if we're to believe, you know, the apocryphal stuff, that becomes a symbol of the the birthright of uh, uh, the patriarchs to be handed down, and, and Nimrod apparently stole those at one point um, and it befell to Esau who apparently killed him on a hunting expedition and took back the birthright and he was so disturbed by the whole thing we get the the story of Jacob and Esau I don't want to get too far off traffic track here but um, the story of Jacob and Esau you know and the whole selling of the birthright thing well I think that the birthright there might actually be these garments the the OG animal skins the uh, the OG <laughs> yeah they were on the when they were on the ark I mean this is a whole another diatribe but they were on the ark and these things yeah that, yeah that that's a whole other episode <laughs> but you know to your original point does it, does this sort of get us closer to the wilderness or there, there there's all, all kinds of imagery about closer to earthly things now that that some of your celestial state has been tarnished um, there's the whole uh, admonition about you know, um, cursed is the ground for your sake. Thorns and thistles will it produce. Uh, you know, basically you'll you'll be earning your bread by the sweat of your brow, by tilling the field and keeping animals, that sort of thing. So there is that sort of lowering of, of status, I suppose. There's a, there's one more little interesting piece that's going on there in the garden. So I just mentioned Nebuchadnezzar as a tree. And we talked earlier about uh, that place of Elim with the 70 trees. Well, so where does Eve, where does Adam and Eve hide? Where do they want to hide? They want to hide in the middle of the trees and they cover themselves with the with the leaves of the trees. Well, you go to Ezekiel, I forget which chapter it is, 27 or 32 or something like that. 31, I think it's 31. I think it's Egypt is likened to a, to a world tree there, but it's likened to the trees of Eden. And the trees of Eden become personified as these God, God creatures that are end up being destroyed. So here, here you would have Adam and Eve hiding amidst the gods, trying to cover themselves as something that's symbolizing them. But in turn, God ends up covering them with an animal skin. Covering them with an animal skin.
Yeah. I knew there was something there. Well, there's also gospel news that's in the in the covering because they're sa- they're clothed with the sacrifice, the sacrificial animal, you know, and so that's a that's a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system in Leviticus, and then also eventually of Christ's death and His sacrifice for us. But at the same time, um, I'm always one that gives room for multiple purposes. This story could be be there and i don't i don't think you're necessarily wrong in the way you're thinking on that we're talking about nimrod and then nebuchadnezzar we're talking about two two particular people in 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 the scriptures that were transformed right because we had nebuchadnezzar become a chimera or a werewolf or you know as as judd talked about then we have nimrod who became a a gabor or a i thought he grew feathers Mm -hmm. like you know like nails like a like a like an eagle or something like that eagle claws yeah and his hair was i think it's his hair that's likened to the feathers of a bird or an eagle or something like that what about the behemoths described in the bible that weren't they like a chimerical creature they, they were they were described in job right uh, it seems like they were maybe maybe we're talking about a dinosaur here that you know maybe maybe these are uh, the big uh, um herbivore you know quadrupeds sauropod style dinosaurs which, you know there were probably some of these me- mega faunal remnant animals that did exist in small populations and certainly existed in the tradition you know every now and again we hear about you know a dinosaur or a you know a big sauropod living you know somewhere deep in some rainforest or something like that when i was in peru i was very amazed to find in the the anthropological museum there at uh, uh, Lima there were Incan relics depicting woolly mammoths the Incan zenith was about the 14th and, and 15th century uh, and there aren't supposed to be any of those remnant at the time but you know apparently there were it because they, they're pictured as riding around on and of course the the hotly debated Ica stones uh, <laughs> right. depict uh, dinosaur, dinosaurs as well. I'm a little out to lunch on that, but you know, again, it's not outside the realm of possibility that there were those, those remnants. And I, I tend to think, I don't know. What do you think, Doug? Well, what do you I, think? You know, they, they talk these days about dinosaurs being um, kind of both mammal and avian, you know, having, having feathers and stuff like that. Like that's not mm-hmm. what they taught us as kids. So that's more recent developments. Well, that, that right there is chimeric. And, um, Guy that I that oh. I, I read preparing for my giant book was talking about how if that's true, it's very possible that the whole dinosaur thing could have been some of this genetic tampering, manipulation stuff going on by the watchers. And the reason why they didn't make it past the flood for the most part is because they were unclean creatures and they were not fit for the new world. So God said, no, they're not going on the ark with you. I have zero. I, I personally have zero problem with Behemoth in Job being a dinosaur and being described, and yeah. and people seeing it, knowing what it was. I don't understand why people have such a well, problem with that. But. I mean, Fritz says that's how they built the mounds in North America. They had these the remnants of these big beasts over here, and that's how they were able to move the earth, like the Flintstones, right? Exactly. It's just, move, exactly. just moving, moving rocks. Get Fred, <laughs> get Fred on a brontosaurus. Yeah. We haven't talked about the talk, the talking donkey. It's a weird story, man. That's a weird, weird story. 
I still don't know what to do with that. I've thought about it so much and I, I just don't know what to do with that. It's weird. I mean, he's talking to it. It's like, it's kind of like Eve talking to this, to the serpent. Like this just happens every day. What are you, what are you kidding me? Well, that I have an explanation for that because the, the serpent is a serpentine seraphim and that's what it is. But the donkey, I mean, here's Balaam talking to his donkey. Like this happens to him every day. Hey, so any, any, any last things that you thought that we didn't, we didn't cover on demonology that we think we think we need for. Yeah. Any last questions on the list there? Uh, well, Jed was going to, Jed wanted to talk a little bit about ethno demonology. What's that Jed? Oh, that's right. That's right. You know, one of the things we have to keep, have to remember is that because the watchers and their progeny that became the demons were such culture manipulators and cultural engineers is that they have a, a, a singular talent for creating cultural scenarios for their emergence, their manifestation in, in, in the various mythologies and folklores of the world. And likewise, they can uh, attune and manipulate their appearance and behavior uh, into already existing cultural traditions, mythological traditions, religious traditions. Uh, and as we see in our own world, even seemingly secular uh, conditions. You know, so we, we pride ourselves on being such a secular society. Uh, and yet the demonic realm has has managed to, to fit themselves into the, the sort of sterilized pop culture language that's the kind of lingua franca of the day. And we're talking about symbology and ritual in, in the the architecture of our, our capital and, you know, all kinds of symbols that are used for, for corporations and things like that. A lot of them do harken back to the demonic. And so, you know, again, alluding to the paper that I wrote earlier this year, which in some way may be the beginnings of articulating the subdiscipline of demonology, ethnodemonology, which is... I suppose implicit in demonology because you're, you're dealing with a, a swath of, of different cultures and different manifestations of the same demonic identities throughout the, the history of the world. But I think it's becoming increasingly more important to take take notice of those those particular cultural nuances that surround these particular manifestations. It's part of the reason that I I developed my preternatural morphology program is is to look at those kinds of of cultural conditions that are either 100 percent demon engineered demon constructed or they're demons fitting into existing um cultural folkloric mythological traditions uh so there there i am applying more anthropological models to the study of of biblical material I mean, you, you need that side of it as well to mm-hmm. to make sense of how do we how do we get these words and everything else. And, and and speaking of words, one of my last thoughts is when you think about demons and this and that, sometimes thoughts will go through your mind, and you know your mind is always this. In some ways, it's like things are just coming in and out of your mind. And but when you do something like play within a Ouija board, for example, mm-hmm. it's say you have a thought like you know, you have a conversation with a demon in your head or something, or you're watching a movie, you're watching like a rated R movie, and then you you just think weird stuff, but that's not enough. That doesn't give a demon access to you. Mm-hmm. If you just think uh, think about it, and you think something you shouldn't think, demon's not going to hop into your body. But if you start playing this game, you could get possessed. What's the difference? When do we give access to a demon? What, what do you think unlocks the demon's ability to 
to to attack you, get in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mal- Malachi Martin in his book on um, exorcism, host- I think it's host- no, it's not hostages of the devil. It's a different one, but he's of the opinion that uh, there has to be a very specific act of the will in a person in order for that to take place. And people do that a lot more often than than um, we want to admit. There's a choosing in it, right? I mean, that's... Always a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, when you're growing up, like if you watch the Smurfs or you listen to Metallica, you're going to get possessed. Right. And that, that just isn't the way that it works. I mean, they, they oppress you without any act, act of your will. <laughs> <laughs> that happens all the time. And how much oppression do you think? A, a, potentially tons. Do you think one could be sitting on your shoulder, whispering in your ear? Metaphorically, sure. Fred Flintstone, baby. Right. Back to the Flintstone. Well, there I we mean, go. you know, consider... <laughs> now you're talking about language. <laughs> you know, consider people like, um, you know, St. Anthony. Who, if if we're to believe his the hagiography, um, this guy was was hampered by demons constantly. No, Anthony was the pole sitter, right? That no, that was John Stellatis, the the guy from. You're talking about the guy from Syria, right? Yeah, well, there was more than one of them, but I thought Anthony was one of those guys. I mean, he may have he may have done some of. There were all kinds of weird ascetic practices that the early church fathers engaged not necessarily i mean not necessarily bad or anything but they were just kind of eccentric but i um anthony spent most of his life in the in egypt in the tombs and caves in the wilderness Hmm. and and wrote about these encounters you know that he had and of course scholars would come along later and say well of course, he thought he was surrounded by demons because he's in there with these, the you know, these dead Egyptian, you know, priests and, you know, all, all this, all these magical incantations and stuff written on the walls. Well, yeah, maybe, but um, I, I'd rather take, you know, knowing what we know about the biblical worldview, I'd, I'd rather take, you know, people's people like Anthony, I'd rather take their account, you know, and think that there's some validity and in, in historicity to what he's talking about there. Just think about the lives of of the the disciples, the apostles, as the, as they went out. You know, these all these people were, you know, to one degree or another, hampered by demons. You know, the whole way. Just because you have salvation doesn't mean that you won't be oppressed. In fact, you're you're probably going to be more often than not uh, oppressed as a as a you know. Getting back to what we were talking about a moment ago about the the. You know, the trials of life, you know, the building of character, you know, the, the for believers, demons are, 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 I think, in some ways, a component of that. Doug, what do you think? Yeah, I'm tracking with you. I agree. Okay. <laughs> I figured you would be. I saw the amen in your eyes. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, you grow, up, you grow up and you hear this stuff and you just think if you think one bad thought, you're going to get possessed by these things. But clearly there's a, there's a lot more involved in... There seems to be some randomness to it. Things get possessed. But it seems like pe- people have to specifically put a curse on an item even though. Was well, that more like idolatry where you can you can have these things and have it inanimate objects? Well, I mean there is that that component to it, you know, whether it's you know because ancient peoples did, you know, they did conceive of statuary and and idols and things like that as being, you know, potential vessels for uh, these gods. Um, and that's certainly something that survives in 
uh, particularly syncretistic religions today, like like Santeria and, and Voodoo. That, that's a concept that's widespread in those kinds of religions. Um, but in the ancient world, is it, it's very much, you know, the same. I mean, the, the fact that, that things could be utilized and in, indwelled is widespread. Um, the Asherah poles in the Old Testament would be other examples of that. Any any kind of statuary representation of, of deities could hold fast to that idea. I could go off on uh, idolatry for a long time because um, it's pretty. It, it's a very interesting subject. Indeed. Um, think about the medium of idols in the Bible. There's two things: there's stones, and there's mm. back to our trees again. Stones are also very metaphorical for these creatures. So they make they make the idol out of something that's already naturally sim- symbolizing what they are. And then the idol itself becomes a house. Like pe- people don't understand what a purpose of an idol is. It's a house so that they can through an incantation and magic ritual, bring it into their presence and then control and manipulate it. Mm-hmm. God, God chooses where he's going to have his name dwell. That's his prerogative idolatries no i'm going to choose where i want this thing mm-hmm. to dwell it's a manipulation of the there's deity. a sermon right there you get five point you get five part sermon on that that's fantastic <laughs> had a couple of those had a couple of those <laughs> we talked about this week specifically <laughs> on our episode that just came out about how some of these giant mounds or these burial places or islands were cursed and the locals wouldn't even touch them they wouldn't even take fruit from specific islands that the giants inhabited, that the, the mounds, the ground, it was all cursed. And the people would die if they went around them. And then it was it was more than just hearsay. The ground was cursed. You know, it, it, the only thing that can break that is actually the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person. Uh, because, and that, that's why we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is why wherever Christianity goes and flourishes and the gospel is understood and taught, preached and proclaimed and believed you naturally see the diminishing effects of these creatures because holy spirit's infinitely powerful and you don't even he doesn't even need permission to break a curse he just does it if he wants to this reminds me i don't know if you guys have read in this but i remember when i was reading in the books that didn't make it into the bible i was reading the book of infancy christ was a baby it was supposed yeah, to be like infancy gospel when yeah. he was, there was one I remember reading when they were carrying him around, these idols, stone idols would break apart and fall. <laughs> I mean, it's apocryphal, but uh, the, the idea behind it is mm-hmm. solid theology. Agreed. He's God and he breaks the idols and smashes them into pieces. So just the baby Jesus carrying him around, all of a sudden these stone structures are falling to pieces. I, that was something that stood out and I remembered it all these years later. It's very similar to the statue Dagon <laughs> bowing before the Ark of the Covenant when the mm-hmm. Philistines steal the Ark and bring him into their temple. And they go in the next day and Dagon is like on his face because he's fallen over. Same kind of an idea because the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of the second person. So you just, you just took his throne and put it in your temple. So what's your God going to have to do? He has to bow. That's awesome. Yeah. So you guys wanted some Ark of the Covenant. It made it into the Demonology Part we Two. We needed it. It's like the, this is like the Last Crusade. Oh, that's the third episode. Or Temple. Of, we we're got, in the Temple of Doom. Sorry. Yeah, right. We're in the Temple of Doom. We got it. Messed out. I messed that one up. <laughs> I always skip. I always skip the Temple of Doom because that's my least favorite. 
But that's that's a whole other that's another episode. In this. That's the old western. That's when we go back to the you know the old <laughs> western days. Well, that's like Back to the Future Three. He doesn't drink it. He just likes to hold it. He just likes to hold it. That's right. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you guys so much for coming on. I'll let you get get some sleep. I, we we want to do an uh, episode on the Ark of the Covenant. Obviously, uh, I don't know how I don't know how blurry creatures. I don't know if there's any blurry creatures related to the cup, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, but. Uh, if you consider the glory that Daniel saw that you were talking about earlier as a blurry creature, the glory, I've often right? wondered if the people people that accidentally touched the Ark looked. Somewhat blurry as they. Oh, the Nazi, the Nazi, left, the Nazis did. Existence. The Nazis melted pretty good, and they. I, that's yeah. true. That's very true. Point taken. Yeah. Talking about Indiana Jones, they all, they all melted. There, there's, we, there's we, we know Indiana Jones is canon. <laughs> yeah. Can't remember what it is. I think it's in that same story where they steal the ark. There's this weird, like golden mice thing that takes place with that whole deal. That's that's definitely blurry creature material. All right, we have to get the back. Oh, yeah. Ark of the Covenant. Where is this at? <laughs> oh, yeah. Is this in the Bible? Oh, we're, dude, yeah, we're doing it. mice? Stay tuned. Stay tuned, Blurry Creatures listeners. Ark of the Covenant coming soon. Yeah, there's 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 uh, golden rodents. Are they rodents of unusual size? R-O-U-S. Well, I mean, as long as we're doing movies right now, I, right? Hey, let's go, Doug. I don't, I don't, believe, I don't believe they exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you guys so much. Doug Van Dorn, Dr. Judd Burton. You guys both have giant books. <laughs> Giant books. You have giant hearts, and you uh, and you are you are giants on on blurry creatures. Pitch your books one more time. T- tell our listeners, like, because we would get these photos all the time, and I almost want to post them on our channels. If people have like a stack of books they bought since they've listened to our podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Uh, all, all my books are on Amazon. You can also get them through douglasvandorn.com. Had to change it. It was Doug Van Dorn, and then I lost the rights. Oh so depressing so i got a book on giants that's relevant to this show i got a book on galatians believe it or not it's commentary on galatians that is quite relevant to this i want to put one out on ephesians that would be equally as relevant but i don't have it out yet and then of course uh we did the conspiracy theory show it's tangential to the show but we did we did do it last year I put one out on the angel of the lord uh so all those are Ex- kind of right up work. Alley. yeah excellent work Judd? They're all in uh, paperback and uh, Kindle. Mine are available on uh, Lulu.com. Interview with the Giant, uh, the Nephilim Dossier, uh, Panaeus, the Shepherd Sling. All all of those would have relevance to the the conversation at hand, and people can get those, you know, aforementioned Lulu and or through my site. I'm in the process of of entering the realm of KDP at Amazon. So it probably won't be too long before, Good man. before I'm over there. Yeah, I, I'm trying to do the legwork to get that done. I think if we keep doing episodes together, guys, we're going to have to put together a Blurry Creatures coffee table book with all the creatures. Yeah, there you go. And we're going to have to, we're all going to have Just to go as in. As long as don't ask me create. to illustrate. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm jonesing for Blurry Con too, man. When, when does Blurry Con 1 happen? Ah, uh, it's wait, coming. Just wait. It's coming. It's going to be... Out in Colorado, it's always blurry con. Always. Thank you, as always, for lending your your knowledge Thank and you. your time. Thank you, guys. The flux capacitor will be taking us back to Doug and Jed Part mm. Three. We're going back to the Ark <laughs> of the Covenant. 
We don't need roads. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I promise next time it'll be less movie references. <laughs> Maybe. There Maybe. were a lot. There were a lot. You got them all <laughs> yeah. in. That's all we know. That's all I got, that's man. That's all we know. Yeah. We're not very smart. You guys, that's why I bring just, you guys on. We just know enough dumb movies. We just, yeah, we just speak the layman's language and uh, you guys provide the goods. Appreciate you guys. Seriously, every time you guys come on, I, I know people are going to like this one. A lot of good, good questions and, and great content and I'm excited to kind of hop in one more time and yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. keep us posted, gentlemen. And everyone out there, go buy their books, support these gentlemen. They come on these shows and they spend a lot of time working in the archives, putting together these complicated topics and into books. Support them. Appreciate it, guys. Always fun to be on the show, guys. Party on. Party on.